0: Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, what's taking the state so long to catch up to the rest of the civilized world and dip the chip? Well, it turns out it's pretty complicated. We'll explain plus why securing a hospital is way more than just being HIPAA compliant, a great batch of your questions, our answers, a rock and roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 255 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on February 25th, 2016. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors DigitalOcean, Ting, and ix systems i'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on oh our live stream that's powered by the incredible scale engine over at scaleengine.com you should go check that out my name is chris and joining us every single week is our host the admin the tech and the teacher mr alan jude hey there alan hey chris everybody thanks for watching hello mr world traveler if uh, if if my spider sense was correct i had a tingling that alan jude was on the west coast recently didn't you just get back from a FreeBSD storage summit so you, Alan, are now getting down to the ninja-level travel, where you're like ninja traveling in between shows. Yeah, uh, and so I managed I'm, that. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that if people are curious, they could probably tune in this week's BSD Now, because I bet there was about 55 minutes of coverage. <laughs> I think it was more like 51, but oh, sure. Oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, And so uh, I I sort of set the expectations too high now because you don't you know, Alan Jude doesn't sleep. Uh, I don't know if you guys knew that, but Alan Jude doesn't sleep. He's also going to be traveling again very soon. So for that reason, we've decided to record a double episode next week. So we will be recording uh, 226 and 227 or I'm sorry, 256 and 257 uh, next Thursday. So go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. Also, that means we really need questions sent in because otherwise we won't have enough feedback. So please do email your questions, your ideas, your war stories, all of that to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or use the contact link. I'm putting out the plea now because we really want them so that way we can have great ones to choose from. And so that means we need a whole bunch. Speaking of a whole bunch, we got a whole bunch of news to get into today. And I actually hadn't heard about the great EMV fake out. Uh, what's this about? No chip for you, Alan, or probably yes. for me. <laughs> yeah, for you specifically, yes. <laughs> Tell me you about know, this. Uh,
1: so now most banks have issued customers more secure chip-based credit cards, or if you haven't got one yet, when your card expires, you're definitely going to get a new one. And with the rash of people getting their cards replaced for not because it expired reasons, most people now have a chip-based credit card. Uh, and most retailers now have card terminals in their checkout lanes that can uh, handle you know, dipping the chip Uh, as opposed to swiping the stripe Um, (laughs) that's cute yeah i wasn't sure when Cribbs wrote that but anyway but how many people have uh, been to a retailer and ended up swiping their card even though it has chip and the terminal has chip apparently this happens a lot you know i've even seen somewhere uh they'd like you put this little piece of paper in uh between your card and the
0: reader so that it it won't Uh, it sort of failed the chip and let you swipe. Oh, you know, I have seen that actually. Um, I, I wonder what's going on with my card. I got a letter saying you have received your chip and pin card, but I haven't gotten the card.
1: (laughs) Well, usually you get the card and then a week later you get uh, a pin number on a different thing and you only got one of the two, right? Yeah. You should definitely call Mm. because they'll have to start it all over again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Also, I don't know, check your mail and see if it's. Fell somewhere.
0: somewhere. Yeah. yeah. So I have seen this workaround happening.
1: Yeah. Uh, so there's that work. There's somewhere around where they're just like, please swipe. Uh, and then there's somewhere they're like, yes, this is this little piece of paper to make the reader not work? And I'm like, well, that's really fishy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, but it's a, uh, comparatively few retailers actually allow chip transactions. Most of them are still asking customers to swipe the stripe instead of dip the chip. I, I'm having trouble getting over saying that. Dip the chip, Alan. Never heard it called that here in Canada. <laughs> uh, most times you insert the card uh, from the bottom of the machine. There's only a couple where you actually dip it from the top. Uh, leave it to, it to us Americans to come the up with a
0: food analogy for something like this. Yeah, so. <laughs> uh, I get that, yes.
1: <laughs> uh, this will examine what's going on here and why so many merchants are holding out on chips. Just not going to read what's written there. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, visa CEO uh, on a recent earnings call said that about 750,000 locations, which represents about 17% of the US face to face card accepting merchants, are now enabled to handle chip and pin transactions, or sorry, chip based transactions. Hmm. In the US, most of it's still chip and signature, mm-hmm. not chip and pin, which is just strange. But anyway. Um, which is also called EMV. Uh, viewed another way, that means that U.S. customers currently can expect to find uh, chip cards accepted at checkout lines in fewer than one in five brick-and-mortar merchants. Uh, you know, This leaves the question of why so many uh, retailers are not using the chip. Sorry, it said trailers, not retailers. <laughs> Got to fix them notes. Yeah, uh, so in Canada and the EU, almost every transaction is chip and PIN. Right. Like... I don't remember the last time I didn't have to use a PIN.
0: Right, right, okay.
1: Except for when I used like, my pay wave to pay for something under $50 without...
0: Yeah, for me, the only time I use my it. PIN is if it's a debit transaction, and if it's a credit transaction, I always sign.
1: Yeah, so I think part of the reason why adoption was so much easier and faster in Canada is almost everybody used debit cards rather than credit cards for most things, like mm. a grocery store and so on, uh, and so was already used to... Swipe the card, type in the pin. Yeah, so, okay. insert the card while you type in the pin was really no different. Right, yeah. Um, hmm. There. So, the new MasterCard and Visa rules went into effect on October 1st of 2015. And basically, they say that merchants uh, are on the hook to pay 100% of the cost of any fraud associated with transactions in which the customer presented a chip-based card but was either not asked to use the chip or uh, was asked to swipe instead. Yeah, you know, so if if you have a chip-based card and you go to a merchant and they don't use the chip, the merchant is on the hook if it was a stolen credit card.
0: Yeah, that's a little that's a little bit of a uh, stick and carrot approach there, isn't it?
1: Well, this this one was definitely uh, you know, the merchants will upgrade and support chip or they will be responsible for all the losses Visa's and the banks usually absorb for them, although honestly the merchants normally take most of the front the brunt of the fraud anyway. Hmm. So I don't know if it was quite as much of a stick as they uh, make it sound to be. Okay. You know, as a merchant, I've won a chargeback once in 25 times mm. or something like that. It's pretty rare. Uh, anyway, so the chips hold uh, uh, encrypted cardholder data and are far more expensive and difficult for card thieves to clone. Whereas, you know, the swipe card, you have seen people just reprogram gift cards and so on, right? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, they say, uh, some merchants, particularly larger ones, uh, want to turn the often painful experience of training their customers on how to use chip cards and terminals into someone else's problem. So each store is kind of waiting until the customers know how to do it because they've gone through the pain at some other store. But that doesn't really help if none of the stores switch over, right? That
0: uh, is – so they're waiting for the other guy to, to spend the money to do the job.
1: Well, or it's not even so much spend the money as – Risk, you know, the customers being all grumpy because it's like, "Uh, what, the machine, you're changing how the machine works? I don't know. You know, you know, how many, how many grandmas are going to have troubles with the chip? I see what you're
0: saying. Yeah. Okay. I see what you're saying. And
1: then those are like, well, I'm not shopping
0: there anymore because it's too hard to pay. (laughs) So they're waiting until it becomes more normalized with consumers before they pull the trigger. But of course, if nobody does that,
1: does it, then that's never going to happen. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) so they they see chip cards as just slowing down lines and uh, chose to wait until customers learn to do it and do it quickly at someone else's store uh, which i don't know like i don't know how much slower it can be right if if you don't <laughs> if you're not using a pin and you still have to sign the piece of paper so instead of swiping you stick the card in and you wait a couple seconds and then the thing comes out and you sign it and it I don't understand how it can be slower. It's like, how hard is it to put a card in a slot? You do it at an ATM all the time.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's – you know, Alan, um, I I am always amazed at how slow people are at this process, especially those of you out there, the precious one, those of you out there that write checks – in the grocery stand checkout. You know what I do when I write a check? When oh, I'm, I'm like, like three carts be back, seat. I start filling out the check. Well, I'm at Safeway, so I'll, and today's this date, and I know I'm going to approve it, so maybe I'll even sign it. And then they just have to tell me the amount. Boom, boom, here's your check. Why doesn't everybody do that? It, it, it is amazing, Alan. Uh, when when I have been, for for the years now that I have been shopping for myself in grocery stores, I, every time I'm in line, get stuck behind people who have no idea what they're doing, even though they look like they're 40 years older than I am, or or at least have been to the the grocery store multiple times they still can't figure it out it's horrible alan so that's got to be and you know what they know that's one of the most frustrating processes about going to the grocery well, store what's odd is i don't know here but i like
1: never see people pay with a check
0: yeah it's I, very very rare most, I don't think most of the stores would do it here anymore it's considered a little bad form i think here but well, it, like i remember
1: when i was younger there was a little thing like a this plastic thing where for yeah. you to write
0: the check on but those are all gone now like we don't Really, yeah, people are writing on a piece of paper like dead tree. They're writing on there. Well, yeah, I know what a check is. No, I, I know, it, but it's like but I mean, it's that's it's I just amazing. Mean, I, I don't see that at grocery stores yeah. anymore. It's because it's barbaric at grocery stores because you slow the whole line down. Um, well, it's not just that. It's just you know the stores don't like it because it's like, well, maybe we'll get paid. <laughs> uh, they can run it through a machine now. Uh, but you know, uh, you know what genuinely is pretty damn quick, surprisingly quick, is uh, the uh, Apple Pay. I, I was well, experimenting see, with that, and I was like, so is this Whoop paid? I'm like, okay. <laughs> so, so yeah, my, my credit cards have that built in now here. And right, I right. use it
1: pretty often, but it, it's only good for up to $50. Well, that's not bad, though. You know, go right. So it works great at the coffee shop, right, the Starbucks or the Tim Hortons or whatever, uh, that type of transaction, or even gas, tap, go, right? But, um, you know, obviously at the grocery store, I spend more than that. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, so it's uh, been very – I've wondered. It's
1: been very slow adoption. Is, I keep hearing these complaints about the machines being slow. I don't know if just the machines down there are just not as good or if you guys have bad internet connections. Well, there's,
0: there's a case of that, too. Everybody has a mixed bag of how they connect back. Most of them aren't. Almost nobody's yeah, on like, dial-up anymore, uh, but some of them are. Uh, and uh, I think what happened really, Alan, is in some cases a commercial company comes in and says, we're going to sell you an end-to-end solution for your point of sales. They sell them on that system like back in 98 – And then – or 95 or something like that. And then you know it's in their interest to continue to have them use that system as long as possible because there's a monthly contract there and they're just milking it. And so a lot of these systems are like – people jumped on them and grabbed them when debit cards and all that were pretty popular. And then they just really haven't upgraded them. And now some of them are upgrading um, because they have to and because mobile payments are coming around. But it's such a mixed bag still. Like – I do every once in a while encounter a place
1: where they still it, – it's dialing up in order to tr- submit the, yeah. the credit card. Are you tr- see that at some
0: – like, uh, like those third-party ATMs sometimes too. I'm not
1: seeing that there. But but yes, obviously if it dials up, it's going to be terribly slow because a, it's a modem connection. But mostly it's that you're waiting while it gets a dial tone, dials, mm-hmm. <laughs> answers. <laughs> does the handshake. Does the carrier handshake, yeah. et cetera. <laughs> um, but like the the phone company here sells a, a low speed DSL. It's like 128 kilobits or whatever. Yeah, but it's yeah. A, a cheap DSL connection yep. specifically for the stores to yeah. have their terminals. You and know it's... what I
0: what I find in the uh, slightly more affluent areas of Washington is uh, a lot of iPads and Square or or mobile devices in Square, uh, coffee shops and restaurants are basically now. I guess if if it's a small like mom and pop type place, yeah. That maybe yeah, yeah like uh, several several new restaurants it's how hipstery in the area <laughs> yeah well especially where i live now it's all like there's no there's no um commercial like big uh, right. chains it's all mom and pops and a lot of them are using square some of them on like uh, androids too but uh it's that seems to be and that's kind of an interesting improvement in some sense because once you're registered with square it kind of recognizes you again um, and it's a quick payment process. They bring it over the table. It automatically does the tip calculation for you That's if you want. That's the
1: thing I forgot. In America, you don't have that.
0: What? So, see,
1: in Canada, everybody has these mobile uh, – at, at restaurants, they have these Oh, mobile. really? So, so, you don't ever – your credit card never leaves your possession. The waitress or waiter, whatever, comes over your table, and it's like, there's your receipt. You owe us this month. I type that in, and then uh, they hand it to you. You stick in your card. It's like, okay, I want to tip either, and then you select dollar amount or percentage, and mm, then you enter mm-hmm. it in. It's like, so that'll be your total. And it's like, uh, actually, I want to change it. That's too much or too little. Yeah, or whatever. exactly. Yep. Same. So I want to round it out to be exactly a, a, an even number or whatever. Yeah, yep. And then you're like, okay. And then it's like, and you enter your PIN number, and it's like, okay. And then it's, and then it's okay. Take your card out and give the machine back. And then they get the their copy of the
0: receipt, and it's done. I do actually and, and really they do like this it. at your table. Yes, exactly. And, um, I'm, I also prefer to go paperless, so I've just registered my email address with Square, so I just get all of my receipts sent to my email address, which is nice, all too. Right,
1: cool. But so the Square readers, they're just tiny thing that connect by the audio jack on the phone.
0: Yeah. So they a... obviously don't support chip. No, but they have a new one coming out, I think, that does, and I think it connects uh, uh, maybe over Bluetooth USB? or Wi-Fi or something, oh, okay. or lightning, obviously, I do I,
1: I think a physical connection is better, but... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, at the same time, having to have it sticking out of the device is more cumbersome to use at a... At a permanent installation, yeah. right? The Stripe is, or not Stripe, sorry. The Square was really designed
0: for really mobile applications. Yeah. I've seen some. I don't know if the, I doubt they're Square, but I've seen some. They're like a whole case too, mm. and it's a whole. You know, then the, then the tablet just goes into the case. Right. Um, that is now. You're right. At the chains and the big box stores and the brands, uh, none of that. I'm not seeing any right. of that. But at the at well, the, just it
1: wouldn't tie into other their stuff,
0: right? But all, at all of the kind of more boutique ones, it's really big, and and everything from um. Not just, like, restaurants, but, like, hairstylists and uh, uh, antique stores and uh, a candle. Uh, Alan, Alan, I went to a nunnery that makes wax candles from beeswax. Like, this nunnery has a whole bunch of bees, honeybees and stuff, and they sell the honey, and they take the wax and stuff, and they make candles, and they use Square and an iPad to sell you the candles. So, it's... (laughs) It is really kind of. I don't well, know what, if you want they're
1: fancy candles. I, I happen to know somebody who sells fancy candles. I don't know but what if, they're
0: going to do though. With, with what are the nuns going to do, Alan? If, the, if they don't take Chip, what are they going to do, Alan? They can't chip and in dip. Particular, <laughs>
1: uh, they would be on the hook if uh, you, after buying the the, the candle, uh, right? Went those to your nuns, bank.
0: those nuns are liable. Well, if, if you if you buy the candle
1: and they go to your bank and say, "Hey, I didn't shop there," or even just uh, less maliciously, I don't remember shop buying anything there because you know maybe the name on the receipt uh, that shows up on the credit card statement is a little strange right doesn't match up to your memory of candle store because it was like right the
0: what's a who's it
1: nunnery or whatever
0: <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah all right so okay moving on that wasn't yes. the point of the story Sorry. we got really distracted there so it seems even with the
1: liability shift, which Visa and MasterCard hoped would push, uh, push merchants to be ready on time, many merchants have not completed upgrades to their payment systems or cash registers. So even though maybe they have updated terminals, their back-end system that connects to the terminal isn't all upgraded yet. Surprise, uh, surprise. Many merchants, uh, and then apparently many of the acquiring banks uh, or acquirers, basically the other end that the terminal talks to to actually bill your credit card have uh, long queues for their certification process. So, you know, once you have your updated software, it, it often has to be actually certified with, mm. um, by the bank that's going to interact with so that they can make sure it's going to work and not act funny or whatever. Hmm. Uh, and apparently there's a, a line for that. And so, you know, you end up, you, you submit your software and it's like, yeah, in six months, we'll let you know if your software is okay.
0: And oh, then yeah, say, well, oh, we found this issue, and then do it over again. That's compelling for somebody trying to get something to market. Yeah, that's yeah. great.
1: Uh, although, so is, then it's very
0: compelling for the more expensive... Uh, vendor to say, hey, ours has already been certified. Yeah, uh, this, is a, yeah which, this is an interesting problem, because so you, have, you have something that's going to make it something hard for a lot of people on a budget to acquire, plus you have something that's going to make it slowing it down so there's not a lot of competition entering the market. Then you have the actual uh, point-of-end uh, purchasers who are, are waiting because they want the rest of the market to adopt to train the consumers. So you literally have resistance at almost every stage of the system. And that is, that is a recipe for something that's going to take forever to be adopted.
1: Yeah, although the rest of the world has already adopted it. I know. The U.S. is the only uh. one out of the G20 that doesn't have it. America! And, and your, your attempt to adopt it isn't even going full force in the first place. You're not expecting people to remember a PIN number. Because, you know, if people aren't used to that, I can understand that, you know, imagine the level of forgotten PIN
0: numbers. <laughs> Yeah, but you know what? I'm pretty sure Donald Trump's going to make everything great again, so I'm not so worried about it.
1: Right. Anyway. (laughs) Uh, Visa said based on recent uh, client surveys, it expects 50% of uh, face-to-face card-accepting merchants to have chip uh, card transactions enabled by the end of the year. Uh, But even 50% adoption can mask a long tail of the smaller merchants, right? As we see, the big stores will have it, but a lot of little places might not. Right. Right. And, you know, they will put off as long as they can the expensive software hardware upgrades to accept chip transactions. And guess who's maybe... Hopefully, as they do that, it will be less expensive.
0: Yeah, the problem with, like, the mom-and-pop stores or the smaller places that are going to be resistant to adopt it, they also could become targets. Yep. So.
1: Uh, Although, you know, um, if they're on the older ones that don't really have much software versus if they move to a new one that's, you know, a Mm -hmm. Windows computer with the software, maybe they're actually less vulnerable Mm -hmm. at first. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, the, uh, yeah, so the United States is the last of the G20 countries uh, to move to the more secure uh, chip-based cards. Uh, as late as the U.S. is on EMV implementation globally, the process of merchant shifting to all EMV transactions is still going to take several more years. Uh, Visa said it typically took about three years after the liability shift for other countries before 90% of uh, uh, payment card transactions were chip-on-chip, which is a chip card in a chip terminal. Hmm. Uh, So, on average, it took three years. I guess it was just... In other countries, it started so long ago uh, that it wasn't so much of a thing. Yeah. Uh, Historically, software was developed by the terminal manufacturers... The places that made the actual card swiping machine, uh, with very few, uh, with just uh, you know a few contract programmers who kept up on old school operating systems, because it was often embedded with like a real time OS or something, mm-hmm. not not even like a Linux. Um, software development kits and so on for each terminal manufacturer. So there's just this small pool of people that wrote the software for all the terminals. Uh, even if they were, you know, as you're a contractor, you work for like three different of these companies that maintain their various different models of terminals. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was easy for merchants and processors uh, to get to going. Uh, you know, install these specialized tweaks that created countless variants uh, of the different terminals. Now the software is more complicated because it involves, you know, correctly implementing cryptography. And the terminal vendors are struggling to keep up because they all of a sudden either need to find more contractors than there are or uh, build an in-house staff of, of developers to build these terminals. So it's all of a sudden, it's not so much about we're a company that builds this physical device as a terminal. It's we're a software company that sells our software bundled on this terminal. Yeah. And so either new companies have to come along or the old companies have to shift. Right. They say uh, there are also very few EMV software developers who understand the U.S. market. So most of the people that develop EMV software are from the rest of the world where, you know, transactions are often different. Sure. Uh, You know. One of the most interesting things is if you go to a restaurant with a group of people in the U.S. or Canada and then you ask for a split bill at the end or something, the, usually the uh, the waitstaff will, like, roll their eyes at you and grumble and so on. <laughs> uh, but in Sweden, they're like, yeah, we'll just go up to the cash register. They split it all up and it was done. Uh, and, you know, in Sweden, when I paid with cash the one time, they were like, oh, right. Yeah, that doesn't happen very often. Oh. I was hmm. like, hmm. Everybody uses cards. Yeah, in
0: the U.S., the protocol is, if, especially if it's a group, is you're supposed to give the waitstaff like, a heads up maybe before you start ordering.
1: Right. I understand that to keep the things separate. Yeah, yeah. Uh- But oftentimes they're like, you know, even if you do
0: at the beginning, they're like. Yeah. yeah. You should have, when we were at the uh, meetup at scale and there was like 60 people there, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was like, just so you know, this is going to be complicated because I'm going to buy everybody's appetizer, but they're getting, they're going to have to get everything else because I don't have enough money to buy food for all these people. And she looks at me like, okay, I can can do that. (laughs) I felt bad.
1: But, you know, basically every country is a bit different and, uh, you know. Uh, So finding people that understand what the U.S. checkout process is like versus in other countries to actually write the software for the terminals. (laughs) Uh, You know, my biggest gripe with the terminals they use at my grocery store is um, the way they formatted the text to fit it on the screen. In the one part where it says, do not remove card. And so remove card is the biggest text on its own line. But if you look just above it, it says, do not right it's kind of confusing isn't it yeah and it's like if they had just uh word wrapped it slightly differently so it says you know (laughs) do not uh you know so that it was more clear that you shouldn't take out the card uh and then later it just says remove card Okay, it's like okay
0: okay Okay. boy uh i'm just i don't know i'm done with cards really
1: but they say uh there's an invisible hand at work that uh is about to kick everyone in the pants and accelerate u.s uh EMV yes. adoption. Okay, uh, If you use a car, uh, chip card at a point of sale and they say swipe and you later say, that wasn't actually me. I didn't buy that. Uh, there's very little the merchant can do to dispute this charge. It's going to happen because uh, what people aren't thinking about is uh, friendly fraud. When people are made aware that if I swipe and I have a chip card, uh, that lunch can be free if I'm a bad consumer.
0: right? Hmm.
1: Uh, and so I think that is probably what will drive the adoption at the smaller places. Yeah. Now, you know, in particular, the one place they talk to is, like, uh, uh, dry cleaners. Not, they're not that worried about it. Uh, but at other places, maybe they are.
0: Hard, like, you know, a, like a community hardware store. I know uh, that a big problem that uh, is happening in our neck of the woods is people are coming in and stealing things or uh, using, um, like, uh, not uh, what they're, they're like uh, – they're like these – Charged Visa cards that have got somehow gotten oh, the funny. stored value ones. Yeah, and they're coming in and buying a bunch of goods with those and walking off and stuff like that. Uh, and I don't know exactly how that. I don't know exactly how this would change those kinds of things. Would this would there be a change there? If because when you well, still have these charged cards, but with a pin or and a chip, sure.
1: But uh, if if you have a card with a pin and you use the, uh, use a, if you have a card with the chip and you use the chip, then the bank is liable for the fraud. If I show up with a chip card and you uh-huh. let yeah, me right. use the chip and make me swipe, okay. then the store is uh, liable.
0: That makes sense.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, but just a note: that's fraud, right? If you if you if you mm-hmm. purposely say, "Oh, I didn't make that charge in order to get your free lunch or whatever," and, and screw the merchant.
0: Yeah, but obviously, that's, fraud. that's There's plenty of people that. that aren't above doing that. Exactly. Uh,
1: You know, if you're curious about uh, chip card swipe adoption in your area, uh, Krebs took an informal survey. uh, (laughs) Yeah. You know, did an unscientific survey involving a shopping spree one uh, recent morning with no fewer than seven different retail locations. Shopping spree. Which which revealed exactly seven different chip capable payment terminals instructing customers
0: to please swipe card. (laughs) Hmm. I think Krebs just went on a shopping spree and, and then wrote it off as a tax expense. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he found that, you know, all of them had a different terminal. Whereas here, I only usually, there's only so many terminals that I normally see. There's mm. a couple of specific brands. Oh, like really? That. You don't have all, like, every, almost well, everywhere I go has a different one. We, th- there's at least, like, 10 maybe, but not that many more than that. Really? Um, well, one of the major banks here owns one of the terminal companies, and they push theirs pretty hard.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh mm-hmm. so you see that a lot of sense.
1: various terminals. Yeah. And then yeah, uh the Ingenico one that uh, somebody just linked in the chat room is another uh one of the really popular ones here in Canada. A global leader
0: in seamless payment, uh if the uh link is to be believed. Yes. Hmm. Hmm. Fascinating, Alan. You know what you know what I think is uh sort of the meta story here, when and Krebs is doing a great job of covering it is this is a significant transition in how the US does its payments for its economy. And we're going to be two, three, four, five, eight, ten 10 years down the road, and we're going to look back at this. And well, actually, what I mean is that when we get five to 10 years down the road, it's just going to be the new normal. We're not even going to realize yeah. there was some big trans- transition, but this is sort of documenting that transition. So we actually will be able to look back and remember when we made the switch like this. That's yep. kind of neat. Uh, I remember,
1: you know, when carts were a thing at the time or whatever, but. Uh Going into the old local hardware store, and they still had the old, like, chunk machine. (laughs) Yes. That, that, like, did an impression of the card. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, what is that? (laughs) Uh, And then, you know, and then uh, last year at, or no, two years ago now? Yeah. Uh, In 2014 at MeetBSD. Uh, I bought a DVD, a history DVD about BSD off Kirk McKissick, and he had one of these that he hauls around with him to conferences to do awesome. it. Like, awesome. like, dude, get a square thing for your phone. <laughs> yeah. yeah, It's much lighter to carry around than this ka-chunk machine.
0: <laughs> That's just a half of it, yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, actually, I think when we uh, – I think it was the P.F. Changs, when they got their, their uh,
0: point-of-sales terminals compromised, they were going to switch back to the kachunk machine? Yes. 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 Sad. Very sad. Well, any closing thoughts on this particular story, Mr. Jude? Uh, my big question is, does typing
1: your pen really take that much longer than signing a receipt? No. It, my answer is no, it does not. Yeah.
0: In fact, it might even be faster because you don't have to fish for a pen. You don't have to get the receipt just right. Or, you know, if it's on yeah. the screen, you don't have to do, like, the half-assed. Signature. Oh, the
1: screen? That those, like That proves how useless the signatures are. I know. Are.
0: It really does. It, you know what else, half you know, the time, there's, like... A
1: third of three letters and that's it.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, you know what else is? I don't think I, I've I've put signatures on there that look like, I mean, a total forgery because it's just so horrible. And it's not like somebody's in the bank. Well, there's Mister Fisher's signature. There's Mister. That one doesn't look like Chris. Nobody's doing that.
1: Well, exactly. You could just put an X every time and it yeah. works pretty fine.
0: Uh, All right, Alan, well then, let's take a moment and talk about something else. Let's talk about Ting, .ting techsnap.ting.com. Please go there to support the show and get yourself $25 off your first Ting device or $25 in service credit if you have a Ting-compatible device. And you just might because they got CDMA and GSM. What's up? So you could uh, just check over on Ting's site. they got a compatibility checker. Average monthly bill per device for Ting is 23 bones. Right there. $6 for the line. And then it's just your usage on top of that for minutes, messages, and megabytes. They have fanatical customer support, just part of the plan. You can. What I love now is you, when they're busy, you can call and be like, uh, yeah, Ting, call me back. When you've got times, you hang up, right? You just go about your life. Like, you know, you've got things to do, and then Ting will call you. They'll call yep. you and work with you, which is super slick and really nice way to do it. Then on top of that, uh, which really kind of almost eliminates the need for their incredible customer service, is they have a really, really, really great dashboard uh, that really is... I think, the best out there. You can manage every aspect of the device of each individual line, very clear where your bill's going. Um, that's a really nice tool. They have really great phones, from feature phones all the way up to the Cadillac devices. Ting, I think, uh, there's There's those of you out there who are in small business, and maybe you uh, have people that you want to give a phone to like I do, like Mr. Rekai, right? He's stuck right now in the storms on the uh, East Coast, and uh, he's keeping me updated on when he's going to be back, using his Ting phone. And uh, if I didn't give him that line, I would have no idea where the hell my editor is right now, because he was supposed to arrive last night at midnight. He's still not here. <laughs> and so, as a small business owner, it's not like I can afford to, every time I want to give somebody a line, spend another 60 bucks a month or $125 a month. And the thing about Rekai is he's a clever guy. He just stays on Wi-Fi most of the time, so it really almost costs me nothing. And this is a really nice advantage if you're a small business or a family This is something to consider because at $6 a line, it's an incredible value. Also, I think maybe if you're in school, you might want to consider it. Uh, I know we have uh, some folks in the college age that watch the TechSnet program, and maybe you've wondered why you don't see more Ting on college campuses.
1: So Paul L. on Facebook asks, Would you consider
0: discounts or extra Ting credits for college students interested in Ting? I think it would be a great way to get your service known for the younger population. So we absolutely would consider that. We love college students. We we um we thought college students would be a would be a great fit for Ting. Uh, usually people are on a tight budget. Uh, people have Wi-Fi on campus, so you can you can literally live on Wi-Fi most of the time. And I, I think people could have, you know, ten fifteen dollar phone bills every month. Uh, the funny thing is, when we started to go to campuses and talk to people about Ting Mobile, uh, we found way too many people who uh, who weren't even paying their own phone bills. They were on their family's uh, uh, phone bills, which is you know which is great for them. But uh, but it was a, it was sort of a long shot for us to get all these kids to convert their their families to Ting. So we sort of gave up on it maybe a little bit, but. Uh, but we should dive back in. I think there's there's probably loads of college kids that are paying their own bills that are on a tight budget, uh, and we could do really well there. So uh, we'll take a look at it. It's not just college kids on a tight budget. TechSnap.ting.com. Spend your money wisely. And, by the way, no early termination fees and uh, no contracts. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool, too. You just pay for what you use. TechSnap.ting.com to support the show and try out their savings calculator. Okay, Alan, this headline from the register has gotten my attention Patient monitors altered. Drug dispensaries popped in colossal hospital att- or hack. Now, I actually yes. read about this. It didn't seem super colossal to me, but it does seem like a sign of things to come. Um, your thoughts? Well,
1: so this was not bad guys attacking the hospital. This was the hospitals working with researchers uh, for two years to see where the problem areas at the hospitals were. Oh, I got gotcha. you. But uh, the research was their assessment of 12 different healthcare facilities two healthcare data centers. Uh, two active medical devices from one manufacturer, and hmm. two web applications that remote uh, adversaries can
0: easily deploy attacks against. So essentially uh, the full stack, as it were, sir.
1: Yeah, so they, they basically looked at everything and basically were able to compromise all of it. Uh, they How say, lovely. we demonstrate that a very a variety of deadly remote attacks were possible with these facilities, of which four attack scenarios are presented in the report. So as you might expect, this is a PDF uh, as you might not expect, it is a seventy-one page PDF.
0: <laughs> Yay! And we have it linked, of course, yes.
1: in the show notes. Yes, because uh, I couldn't read the whole thing to you. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, yeah. But this is a uh, one overarching finding of our research is that the industry uh, industry faces almost ex- or focuses almost exclusively on the protection of patient health records, because that's you know the thing where there's laws protecting you know you have your uh, HIPAA and so on, right? And so that's where everybody spends all their time and energy, and rarely address threats to or the protection of patient health itself mm. from cyber threat perspective. Uh, so, you know, protecting patient health records has been a thing since before computers, right? They were locked up in of rooms, course, yeah. and there was controlled access. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's kind of continued. Mm-hmm. But what has changed is that all of a sudden, you know that uh, the m- heart monitor at the side of your bed, is connected to the network so that it can notify the nurse across the building instead of only by making beeping noises that somebody would have to hear. Mm -hmm. Uh, And no thought seems to be being put into, well, what would happen if I could remotely connect to that device and turn the alarm off so that when the patient started having trouble breathing, no one would be notified and they would pass away. Is that, is that, is that actually
0: true? I mean, are they? Are these they, manufacturers they, they actually to building do
1: that? Like, obviously, this, How this network is thing? This meant seems... to be segregated, right? It's meant to be not connected to the internet.
0: But this seems like it seems like uh, if you're if you're building something like this, you'd have to take that into consideration. Yeah. I just, it's it's dumbfounding that they couldn't have thought of that, and for, and then partially well, it's also implementation, right? Because how's the hospital putting exactly. on the network? How are they securing that network? The, the hospital
1: is not hiring capable enough it people or whatever right because it is not really the focus of the hospital except until you realize that you know all those heart monitors are networked so that at the nursing station there's this one big display and it says oh somebody should go check on the patient in room 307 or whatever right uh, but yeah so we'll get to the specific compromises in a minute um uh, they say, also say the background uh motivating factors nuances and misunderstandings that uh peripherate the healthcare industry, uh, with regard to security, are discussed at length in the report. In summary, we find that uh, different adversaries will target or pursue and compromise uh, patient health records, while others will target or pursue compromise of patient health itself. So if you scroll up a little bit, there's a chart with uh, red and yellow squares. Yeah, definitely. So you can see if it's just a, an individual person or a small group And the little icon of a guy wearing a baseball cap They're mostly untargeted attacks So they're just scanning the whole internet or whatever And if they find your thing they might attack it And uh, <laughs> <you> know, <yeah. laughs> that's the thing that the, the And they're mostly after rec, uh, health records Because then you can you know, use that information to steal somebody's identity or something Or to get free prescriptions And uh, uh, healthcare fraud Uh, So that's the thing they're mostly protecting against. But then you have uh, the political groups and hacktivists who might be after the health records of a specific person Mm. or targeting a specific hospital or something. Then, uh, and that's represented by a little bust of a guy with the, not quite the anonymous mask, but obviously what it's meant to be. Yeah, okay, okay, yeah, all
0: right. (laughs) I'm not sure what the organized crime icon is supposed to be, well, it's like a gangster like, in a in a sombrero. A, <laughs> well, I think it's like supposed to be the trench coat and hat. Yeah, like with a tie. The, he's got a nice tie. He's the only guy that has a tie. He's got like a cigarette <laughs> or something though, it's or, a, or a cigar. I don't. Yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah. So organized crime will target uh, specific victims with uh, patient health attacks. So they'd actually, you know, maybe turn off somebody's heart monitor, or a, you know, uh, one of the other ones they did was compromise an insulin pump and you know cause it to kill a person.
0: <sighs> yeah, that's horrible.
1: Yeah. Uh, and so that's and then nation states just want everything. Yeah, of course. Oh, and they also they have terrorism. Uh, where terrorism will you know? Imagine the terror you could create by causing a bunch of people in hospital to die.
0: I right. like that it's indiscriminate or specific. Could be either, you know.
1: Well, right. Uh, they could go after specific people because those people would cause even more of a a, a thing, or just. Kill lots of random people. So which, this is okay. the
0: threat grid to your health records and health information, Something. right? This is the threat grid. That's what I'm calling it.
1: But they say uh, the two major flaws in the healthcare industry with regard to the threat model are, one, uh, the focus is almost entirely on protecting patient records instead of uh, right. considering you know, actually protecting the patients, right? And two, the measures taken address only unsophisticated adversaries, essentially only one of the adversaries listed in that table, uh, the individual or small group adversary, which is in yellow. The industry is aware of and seeks uh, and and speaks to organized crime and nation state adversaries, but deeply underestimates their sophistication and motivation, right? We've seen that Hmm. stolen health records can sell for quite a bit. So if you're organized crime and you can steal a,
0: hundred thousand records and sell them for $500 a piece. That's a big thing. Also, it's great for blackmail, which nation States could also use hand information for blackmail against politicians, things like that. Yep.
1: Uh, and yeah, same thing for nation States, you know, they can force you to become a spy for them by blackmailing you or whatever. Absolutely. Uh, but the other one is obviously, you know, they can steal information from the hospital that isn't specific to patients, but we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, the strategies is aimed to curtail blanket or untargeted or indiscriminate attacks to obtain patient health records, and ignores the motivations and the strategies that would be employed if targeted patient health or specific victims' health records were being targeted. Right. So the hospital is assuming it's just blanket attacks going to get any health record, which would have certain characteristics. Whereas, they don't seem to defend against you know one person that specifically wants records from one specific person uh, would attack the hospital in a very
0: different way. So if I wanted Alan Jew's records versus everybody in the hospitals? Right.
1: If I wanted just anybody's records, I would look at every hospital and find the one with the worst security and, and go
0: there. Yeah. yeah. Whereas but if I knew if I you'd I want... gone to this place and I want to know why you went there, I yeah. might use maybe more social engineering or something, right. more of a physical there, attack.
1: Yeah, I could basically pretend to be another hospital or something and, yeah. and you'd transfer the records. Who knows? Uh, but yeah, the motivations and scenarios are highlighted uh, in red on that table that we looked at. But yeah, so it's the protection of health records has been around for a long time, but it seems that the industry hasn't really noticed that a lot of the medical devices are now connected to the network and aren't being protected very well. Yeah. Uh, so in the paper, they describe uh, attacking an insulin infusion pump, uh, a patient monitor station, and a barcode reader. So what's interesting mostly is about the monitor one, right? If you're hooked up to this machine and it measures your heart rate and your blood oxygen level and yeah. your pulse and so on... yeah. Um, well, if I turn the alarms off, then the nurses don't come when you're in distress. But the other thing I could do is purposely trigger the alarm, which might cause them to inject you with, uh, you know, saying your heart rate's flatline or something, and then they inject you with adrenaline, and now your heart explodes because it was fine, and you didn't need that shot of adrenaline.
0: I would also assume there's probably like... systems out there that automatically respond and do those kinds of things. Um, i under-
1: sure? Automatically for in- injecting... For probably
0: something like that, right. Sure.
1: Uh, yeah, not for something that might hurt you, but yes, so... Uh, by raising a false alarm, they could actually cause the hospital staff to do you harm uh, and so on. Uh, but And then they also attacked a barcode reader, which is used for uh, inventorying the medicine and so on. And so then they could make it appear like the hospital has lots of a medicine when they don't mm-hmm. uh, and causing a shortage when all of a sudden they go to get it and it's not there. Or, you know, make it possible for them to steal narcotic type things and so on. right? Sure. Uh, or even maybe cause them to be mislabeled or something and, and give you the wrong medication. Uh, but they looked at a bunch of different areas uh, in the hospital where they could attack. The first is obviously the patient health, right? If they can cause the hospital to hurt you instead of help you, that would definitely reach their goal possibly, which might, you know, organized crime might be, let's make sure the witness doesn't survive their gunshot wounds or whatever, uh, or whatever. And then they have the patient health records, which we've talked about, which are worth money. And, you know, People want them. And then uh, mm-hmm. politically motivated things, maybe they want it for other reasons, but mm-hmm. organized crime and so on, they're definitely worth money. Mm-hmm. Service availability. If you can cause the, all the heart monitors in the hospital to go down, that can cause a lot of trouble. And, you know, maybe people don't survive because of it. Because or, And know, maybe you have nurses. no
0: other motive than to cause them some problems because you're disgruntled. Yep. I mean, remember, it doesn't have to be to get money or hurt anybody. It could just be, yeah. F those guys.
1: Well, and also, you know, technically these could happen by accident. You know, That's somebody true. Gets a misconfiguration virus and it yeah, you know, malware, messes yeah. up the network, and now, you know, the is how many times have you gone into a store or something and it's like, oh, our system is slow or our system is down, blah blah blah. Well, that really can't happen if it's a critical system at a hospital, right? Well, it can't be allowed to happen, but it can actually happen, and so attacking that can cause all kinds of problems, and then. That can cause the hospital problems in community confidence and trust. Sure. You know, nobody really wants to go to the hospital if there's a good chance their computer
0: is going to kill you. Yeah, or your information it's is going to get stolen, then your identity yeah. is going to get... Yeah, exactly. Uh,
1: especially, you know, if it's uh, certain types of things, having to do reproductive health or whatever, and things that are sensitive. Um, then there's uh, research and development and in intellectual property. You know, research hospitals have... Stuff that you know, maybe governments in other countries would like to steal. You know, new treatments or new drugs or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they're not even other governments; it's just other drug companies or whatever. Uh, and then there's obviously business advantage, uh, and then hospital finances. You know, we've seen the hospitals pay to get rid of ransomware, but you know, if you broke into the hospital, you could just drain their bank accounts or cause steal all their payroll information. You know, he cause all kinds of problems just because hospitals are a giant employer that has lots of people's social security numbers just for staff, not even thinking of customers. Right. And, you know, in the U.S., uh, hospital stays are expensive. And so hospitals have lots of money. And then obviously you could attack just the hospital's reputation or even the individual physician's uh, reputations. Hmm. Uh, Anyway, it's a 71-page report. And if you're at all interested, you should definitely read it. Uh, It's... Uh, the company that did it is originally spawned out of uh, job, uh, John Hopkins University, which is famous for healthcare.
0: Yeah, it's very much so, actually.
1: And they have uh, checklists and stuff uh, for
0: the hospitals to start looking at, uh,
1: you know, improving. And uh,
0: those of you, of you out there, those of you out there in IT that uh, either uh, work with hospitals or have clients in this area, use this. Use this PDF in the show notes to push this conversation forward.
1: I think one of the biggest ones they pointed out is a lot of hospitals rely on just buying some appliance or, or software or whatever that's been you know certified or audited for HIPAA or whatever. It's like, that doesn't actually mean it's
0: secure. It just means
1: it's been audited. Right, yeah. Yeah, uh, they
0: so often it's look it's at it from, from a HIPAA to. has been such a focus point for the healthcare industry for so long that everything is pretty much designed around, what about HIPAA? What about HIPAA? And it's so, it's, it's so much more than HIPAA. That's the, that's the takeaway. It's so much more than HIPAA. All right, Alan, you know what else is so much more? iX Systems. Head over to iXsystems.com slash techsnap and go find rigs powered by these incredible Intel processors. I had a revelation in the shower, Alan. I know oh. why these Intel CPUs are so killer fast. Do you nice. remember that episode of Voyager where they go back to the 90s and then there's this guy and he has a chip from the future from a time ship and he bases his whole company off of the crazy technology that came from the future? No. Voyager wasn't the best Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, but this is an interesting... It was a two-parter, too, and they go back, and they're walking around in California. I think that was Intel giving us the hint that that's why Intel's CPUs have gotten so crazy fast. And iX systems, I think they just figured it out early on, and they got these rigs built around there, and they have a bunch of amazing systems now. With low-end systems, like with the uh, Atom C- or, uh, the Celeron CPU... Or no, it's an Atom. Atom CPU <laughs> and the FreeNAS, which I really yes. want bad, uh, which is really cool. Well, it's,
1: I'm not supposed to say anything, but I might have, I might have seen...
0: Uh, uh, a bigger version of the <gasps> oh man we are I tell you what we are up to Beat our tracks. we've passed we've passed the see we have passed the point of no return on storage uh, I think like we're down to like a hundred gigs free or less ooh yeah it's no good really need to get some then yeah I know so you know where I need to go iXsystems.com dot yep. com slash I could be like uh, Alan Jude Alan Jude went there in person look at this guy hanging yes. out at ixsystems see when Alan comes to the West Coast he does it right how was that. Yep. That was cool.
1: Uh, you know, I got to see their offices and meet uh, you know my sales rep that uh, I've been working with lately. And uh, also, as you can see there uh, behind me is the production floor. Yeah. Uh, and you know, it's basically an assembly line for computer. I saw a whole bunch of FreeNAS Minis being
0: put together and a bunch of servers as well. <laughs> Did you grab me uh, one by chance? Because I could really use yeah. one.
1: Oh darn. We'll see. I couldn't go any further. You can't really see it, but just uh-huh. uh, behind me on the floor is this line, line on the yeah. floor. Yep. And you're not allowed in there without all the electrostatic protection gear.
0: Yeah, I've been on a similar kind of thing. Now tell me yes. about so, uh,
1: so first of all, you see that I, I'm now wearing this weird shirt. Yeah. I've always wondered why are the people at IX all wearing that same doctors uniform, uniform looking, thing? looking thing, yeah? Well, uh you can't really tell in the picture, but when you look at it up close, there's like a, a wire mesh all up in this shirt. Oh, I, and I it's see basically on the bottom basically protection of
0: uh for electrostatic discharge i thought it was just custom fit to hang on you
1: no, no I, can, uh, I can
0: see the mesh sort of in the bottom
1: well that's also why the sleeves are a bit short like It's so that they don't get in your way while you're working because it's not meant to be a shirt it's actually to keep static from uh electrocuting machines while you're working on them huh uh, so they, they they're very serious about the esd stuff and they you know uh they do a very good job there with the all the grounded benches and stuff but then yes, there's. I get to Tell see about this machine. rig
0: because it, this seems like something I need to have here at JB
1: One. Yeah, so this is a, a chassis that holds 90 hard drives. I'm uh, sorry, inserted what? from the top. 90. <laughs> so, ah. yeah, So basically, it comes out of the rack, and then this big lid flops open, uh, and uh, you just slot in up to 90 hard drives. Wow. And then there there's a picture of it full. 98
0: uh. terabyte hard drives. 90 quick math question what's 90 times 8 terabytes wow alan that's exactly what i need that's about i'll tell you what it is is exactly the amount of storage i need
1: wow I, I imagine you don't actually need that much right now.
0: no not not at the moment but eventually yeah. uh and then, so this is just a jbod so at the
1: back is just all power supplies and fans uh and then that's you perfect connect to it uh then you connect it to you know your Truenas controller head or whatever and you have uh, your Epic storage machine. And the best part is those shelves, uh, the customer that's buying that is actually buying two of those. Oh, jeez. Oh, jeez. You can't see, but the second one's off-frame there, and they're pulling the hard drives out because they had all the hard drives in it, and they tested it. And then uh, once it's been through the burn-in process, they take the hard drives out and ship them separately in a separate box uh, with even more padding uh, because, you know, the chassis doesn't really provide the protection for shipping that, uh, I don't know if you've seen the way yeah, they pack yeah. this stuff when they ship it. Yeah, yeah, they're super careful. <laughs> yeah,
0: so very, uh, mm-hmm. All right, so there you go. That gives you a picture from free NAS minis all the way up to 98 terabyte systems. Check them out at ixsystems.com slash techsnap. And a big thanks to Ix Systems for sponsoring the TechSnap program and for showing Mr. Jude there a little bit of the, uh, the floor. That's mm-hmm. pretty darn cool. I'd like to see that myself. Okay, Alan, so guess what? We're moving right along, and we have something called the Keybase... Uh, um, what is this? I thought KeyBase was an uh, identity service online, not a, not a piece of software. Not, not KeyBase.io.
1: This is a piece oh. of malware called KeyBase. I'm
0: like, this is thrown me for a loop. So <laughs> KeyBase malware, tell me about this.
1: Yeah. Uh, so this is basically uh, a, a rather simple key logging malware that's gone, uh, whose usage has gone through the roof after the uh, program to build your, a custom version of it accidentally leaked online last summer. So it's a spyware family that can capture your keystrokes and also steal data from the user's clipboard and (laughs) take screenshots of your desktop at regular intervals and upload them to the website. Oh, lovely. Okay. Good. Yeah. Caught red-handed, its author promised to stop working on the malware and close down the website where he was selling copies of it for $50. My bad. Um, But then the builder program leaked online and now anybody can build their own version of it. Uh, so it said uh, researchers have also discovered that while Keybase's control software was secured with authentication, the folder where it puts all the images that were uploaded is not. So uh, the hmm. researchers were able to put together a simple script and find all the different screenshots uh, and, and get copies of them.
0: <laughs> Jesus. So this guy, how, how did he get caught and then just got, what, a slap on the wrist? What happened there, Alan? Well,
1: that, that I, I don't like think some bull he crap. got caught. By the police or anything. He just got outed as who he was or whatever. Got doxed or something like that. Uh, But yeah, using this simple method, uh, Palo Alto researchers uh, discovered 62 different domains where key based control panels were installed. And they found 82 different control panels, uh, 125,000 screenshots from about 1,000 computers. Oh, nice. Of all the infected computers, uh, over 200 were in corporate environments, 75 were personal computers. Uh, 150 were used for both and, uh, about 50, uh, included details for more than one user, meaning that they were a shared asset, either used by multiple work colleagues or multiple family members. Hmm. Uh, taking a look at the screenshots, the researchers discovered images depicting online banking portals, invoices, blueprints, camera, uh, video camera feeds, email inboxes, uh, social media accounts, financial documents, booking software, and more. Uh, you know, with both personal and bank- uh, corporate banking details, uh, it'd be fairly easy to do some shenanigans there. Plus, if you have a keylogger, you probably have the username and password that way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, they also found uh, a hotel reservation system, <laughs> uh, so you could make yourself free reservations or something. Yeah, and like the chat room is boring. Actually, the, uh, the hotel reservation software had a pretty nice looking dashboard. It was, it was not the crappy software I would expect. It was something new. You
0: know what I'm surprised it's not on this list? Hmm? Porn.
1: Uh, they had some dating site stuff near the bottom.
0: Okay. Well, pretty tame, though. Yeah. I imagine they
1: just don't mention the porn because it's not that interesting. Okay. Uh, this um the set of educational institutions wasn't notably attributed to any one panel, so it's not like any one of the attackers was targeting educational places but equally distributed across them. Uh, what made it stand out, though, is the same tactic to delivering the Keybase phishing malware uh, was applied here. Basically, they sent the email to the admissions people at the various uh, colleges and universities or whatever, mm-hmm. and these individuals are constantly sent Word or PDF documents, allegedly from parents or students, and so they just open them and then get infected. <laughs> of course. Uh, they There's even one little uh, attachment. Where one of the screenshots is from the school while they're writing uh, a broadcast email to parents about uh, pre- uh, cybersecurity for your kids. Oh, good, classic. And, and it's and it's being in the computer they're doing that is infected with malware. And it's and pretty awesome, beautiful. Uh, from one of the other ones, I actually got like a list of students and all their personal information from uh, the college, and yeah, client in the original- for
0: some people from some people,
1: yeah. And- Bank detailed everything uh, in the original keybase report. Palo Alto revealed that the malware's creator managed to infect himself during the keylogger's testing. Brilliant! And had his activities recorded through screenshots and then sent to the web control panel. This apparently happened again <laughs> with 16 different people that are running these uh, keybase installations managed to infect themselves. Good. So 16 out of the about 100 people that have been using this managed to infect themselves. Idiots. Although some of them, it seems, uh, it was. Test. Just to see if it was working, yeah, although a bunch of them it seems that you know there were some inept script kiddies and so on uh the screenshots saved from their p c show that while a few were just curious script kiddies and so on, some of the other hackers are actually professionals involved in highly targeted campaigns hmm. so if you scroll down to the bottom there we have the they have a series of screenshots from different attackers and getting to look an insight into what they're doing uh, you know, like I think it was attacker number six. Uh, the resolution on the machine was uh, so high that the screenshot only covered the, you know, the top left corner of the screen. <laughs> However, it was enough to make out some interesting observations on tactics. Uh, the a- attacker appeared to be trying to engage in romance scams with multiple women, along with preying on seniors through dating sites. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Uh, there was one where an attacker could be seen logging into uh, a number of different hacked online, like, webmail accounts, like Gmail and Yahoo and so on. Uh, and uh, some other ones where you can see them attacking people or somewhere they're just sending spam or whatever. Hmm. They say, uh, our analysis provides a unique opportunity to see the entire life cycle of a malware infection. Commonly, we see the first image uh, is set to be the key base executable or malicious document. So uh, because it starts taking screenshots as soon as it gets installed, you get to see from the second the malware gets installed through Usually, the pop-up from the uh, antivirus program saying it's going to remove it, and then it gets killed. So, but you get right. to see this whole series of the screenshots. Right. Uh, sometimes that happens all in one screenshot. So there's one where, like, there's a screenshot of the malware running and the virus scanner detecting it all at the same time.
0: <laughs> hmm, there's some private chats. Yep. Yeah. Hmm.
1: Yeah. And then there's, there's bad guys on hacker forums, but. Uh, People's Facebook accounts, bank accounts. Uploading YouTube videos. There's uh, a shipping company creating shipments. Using proxy software. Yep. Uh, So these are the attackers, but if you look up at the other people, there's one with like a a shipping company creating a shipment. You can tell because the background, the desktop wallpaper is like a bunch of ships or something. Security machine. There's security cameras at a hotel. There's the hotel check-in system. Look at that dashboard for the hotel. It's awesome. (laughs) It's like how many people are checking out today? How many have already checked out? Huh. It's very useful if you worked at the front desk. Here's some outlets. Yeah, yeah, just looking at uh, there's even like engineering drawings. You can tell that some of these attackers are using it to attack like uh, industry competitors and so on.
0: Mm. Yeah, somebody's Yahoo mail.
1: Yep, there's somebody wire transferring a million dollars. Wow, <that> stuff. <clears throat>
0: really interesting.
1: When it's on a machine infected with malware, you wonder if it was the owner of the machine transferring a million dollars or another attacker who
0: happens to be being yeah, recorded. T- taking care of that. Let me take care of that. Hmm. That's a great link if you guys want to check that out in the show notes because you can yeah. look at all the pictures. Okay. All yeah, the pretty pictures. pictures. <laughs> lots of them. Yeah, there's the engineering drawing one. Yeah. Hmm. Any other thoughts on this story, Mr. Jude? Uh, no, that's about it. All right, my friend, then let me tell you about DigitalOcean, sponsor of the TechSnap program. Go to DigitalOcean.com and use the promo code SNAPOcean to get some credit. A $10 credit, as a matter of fact, which is pretty handy because their rigs are only $5 a month, so you can try a rig for two months for free. And in less than 55 seconds, you'll have a system with 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, a blazing fast CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. DigitalOcean straightforward hosting my Linux infrastructure on demand. They've got free BSD systems too. They got data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Germany, Toronto. Really nice systems too. But a great interface on top of all of it. Something I really. I've heard nice. of another data center coming. Across. I have two. I have two. You got your ear down to the ground for DigitalOcean, Alan. You're on the top of these uh, data centers. Yeah, I've heard. Well, that the same Canadian thing. one.
1: Is, is because they sent me an email about having to pay tax. Yeah.
0: <laughs> that was kind of yeah. Oh, well, they must be opening something. Yeah. Uh yeah. Uh they do, you're right. And uh, they're uh, they're just they're continuing to expand like crazy. For a good reason too. They've combined a great service with a fantastic dashboard. Lots of good pre setup up rigs that are just pulling from upstream repos. Nothing funky in there when you go deploy a rig. It gets updates mm-hmm. right from the uh, vendor of the software. Uh, They have really simple ways to revert systems back, take snapshots, integrate with a straightforward API. Lots of code already written that uses that API. You can go take advantage of it now either in a library or at a full-baked application or plug it in with your existing management infrastructure. And I love their tutorials. I like like WordPress. The security of WordPress with uh, the Mint hack is kind of a big topic right now. There's an article that was posted on the 4th of February, how to protect WordPress from an XML RPC attack on Ubuntu 14.04. Probably a good one to go through. They have lots of great articles like this. DigitalOcean.com. Go deploy a rig. If you want to, be, if you want to try playing with some container technology, DigitalOcean is a great platform to do that. Check it out. DigitalOcean.com and use the promo code SNAPOcean. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. And you can also find that guide that I just mentioned uh, in the uh, community section of DigitalOcean's website. Alan, I do believe there is a brand new episode of BSD Now 130, if I recall. And uh, this would be the one to check out if people are curious about FreeBSD's uh, storage conference. I bet ZFS Mm -hmm. discussions were had. Yes. Uh, That was mostly what uh, what
1: I talked about in the video because that's the group that I spent most of the time with. And uh, so I only really had the notes from the other groups to talk about. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it was interesting. Um, Seagate
0: said a bunch of people to it. And so we talked a lot about SMR drives as well. That's actually, it's a pretty big episode. Uh, you guys also, of yep. course, like I always, always covered the news and Beastie Bits and feedback and also ZFS coming to Ubuntu and all of that. Mm-hmm. In episode 130 of the BSD Now program, so you guys go check that out at jupiterbroadcasting.com. I'll give you a chance to download that. By the time the unfiltered or I'm sorry, by the time the TechNet program wraps up, you could watch it. I speaking of actually though, of Unfilter, go check out episode 177 for more coverage of the latest developments on uh, the whole uh, iPhone unlocking story. Mm-hmm. Unfilter 177. But with the news all done here in the feedback or in the TechNet, I'm all mixed up in the TechSnap program. Now we're gonna go do the feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupyterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website. Or even better, starting a thread in our subreddit at links, nope, techsnap.reddit.com. That doesn't have links. Site so has not worked for a while. Uh, which we actually got one from the subreddit this week. Holy smokes, everybody. You could submit one just like somebody else did. But first, we're going to start with good old email from Patrick. He's got a question I don't think we've ever answered on this show before about creating a read-only file server. He says, I recently helped a small business recover from a ransomware attack. Yikes. We were able to recover their data files from an online backup, but this took about six hours. Hey, that's actually not that bad. Uh, Their IT consultant said the only way to have a local backup that is immune from this type of attack is tape drives. I wondered if there's a way to set up a file server to act like a CDR drive, where once the data is written, it cannot be changed under normal circumstances. Thanks. Patrick, first of all, do you want to address the tape drive thing or do you want to just go to the read-only no, file server?
1: You know, tape drives can actually be overwritten and so on, but they kind of work. Um, so, in general, uh, this is one of the places where ZFS wins, right? Be, um, if you take snapshots, then those become read only. And until you destroy the snapshot, the old version of the file never goes away. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, we talked about this, oh, I guess it was a year ago now, when I was consulting at the uh, college locally, and they got hit with ransomware or with crypto locker type thing. And uh, they had to do a restore over their link between two of the campuses. Uh, and it basically meant the other campus uh, couldn't use their computers for like 17 hours or something it took to transfer all the files. Um, Whereas if they had a ZFS snapshot, say, every 15 minutes, after they get crypto lockered, it's like ZFS, roll back to then, and snap, done. Boom. Fixed. <laughs> uh, the best part is if, in case there's been changes that's happened after, you create a brand new snapshot after, called, like, Infected, clone that, uh, and then roll back to the other right. version or whatever. Right. Or actually, clone <clears throat> uh, the the good snapshot, and and swap out the mount points.
0: Uh, So that's sort of the way of saying your file... So, so, uh, Patrick, consider what file system your file server is using. Yeah. Uh, Of course, Uh, obviously, we could just mention really quickly, uh, depending on what your file server is, Samba or Windows, it's very easy to just set the shares to read only. So you could have certain shares that your users access that are simply just set to read only via Samba or Windows file sharing.
1: Uh, and uh, the other thing with ZFS is there's actually a read-only property for each data set. So you can leave that on most times, then just turn it off when you're doing the backup, but that's not as handy. The, the mm. snapshots really are the best way to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, if you go over to the iX Systems blog, they have a whole post from uh, a couple of companies that saved themselves from ransomware using ZFS, and they describe how they set it up.
0: Nice. All right. Our next question comes in from uh, JellyGel00 zero zero is what I'm going with from the subreddit. He says, I'm planning on getting myself a server and install either FreeBSD or FreeNAS, mostly just you know to run as a file server. Uh, he links to a ProLiant uh, server he's looking at, uh, mm-hmm. and he says, I've used some power calculators, and it always, ends, it always ends up coming out way too much, I guess because the thing uses a full 750 watts. Uh, so he wants to know how much power use... Does a server? How should he expect for a server at home? Uh, he says while it's in standby, etc. I guess it won't be doing much. But this will be my first server at home. I really like to know how much power usage I should expect. What do you think, Alan? Uh, well, it's definitely not going to be
1: seven hundred fifty watts. I don't even know if the power supply on that is actually that big, um, because it's an older Xeon, like a fifty four twenty. That will make it use more power. Although that particular one is the L fifty four twenty. Uh, instead of the e and so that's a low voltage one which is meant to save a little bit of power Uh, but in general it will be not as good as newer hardware at um, using less power when it's not busy it's also going to be loud Yes, this uh, particular thing is loud. Um, depending what you – if you're just building a FreeNAS or something, you might be better off uh, with modern-ish
0: just hardware. Just do a PC it's with a ton of drives, a drive-based. Yeah. Although, a uh, new you know,
1: this, is a, this is a whole machine with yeah. the CPU yeah. and I think it says there's RAM in it.
0: Uh, so yeah. here, here's – 16 gigs of RAM. For $168, that's a pretty good price. That is not bad. It's, uh, here's, here's the thing to remember, though. Um, it's gonna use. It's not gonna use 750 watts. Maybe unless no. if I guess if every drive bay was full, the thing was at yep. maximum load, and it's it, it actually can't use that much. <laughs> no. So if you're doing the calculations on that, you're calculating at the absolute worst yep. case scenario. It's probably never even gonna reach. Uh, you know. So looking at the L5420 specifically
1: on Intel's site it uses 50 watts per processor and you have two so that you're okay. looking at about a hundred watts there. Although that doesn't count when it scales down. Although because it's an older one, it won't scale, you know, um, yeah, this CPU came out in 2008 to give you an idea of how old it is. Um, yeah. and was discontinued in 2010. Hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, you shouldn't be looking at much more than that. Plus uh, I think it's about five watts per drive depending on how busy they are. Uh, and so on. Uh, to give you an example, the machine I'm actually using right here, which is uh, an i7 4770, mm-hmm. uh, it's got a Nvidia GTX 960 uh, GPU in it. Although mm. that's because right now all that's happening is like Skype and IRC. The GPU is probably not doing very much. Yeah. Um, the draw out of my machine currently is about 60 watts, which is. As much as one old-fashioned light bulb, right? Uh, then when you add the 17-inch or sorry, 27-inch LED monitor, it goes up to about 90 watts. Uh, and so that's all I'm using here. Although if I fire up a video game, all of a sudden that number will go toward like 200 or something. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'll use a lot more. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If I spin up the video game and have the CPU busy and the GPU busy. <laughs> yeah. But right now, where my uh, like my CPU utilization is seven percent uh my cpu manages to clock itself down right uh you know the machine will actually underclock itself and lower its voltage and so on to use less power uh so in those regards newer uh
0: cpus are better because they do that more and better um truth of the matter though is it's probably way more machine than he needs for free NAS too um it's two it's Xeon processors for a free NAS server. Well, it does, I didn't actually read. Does that one have two? Oh. Yes, it is dual Xeon, yeah,
1: not so it awesome. does have two. Uh, so if you're looking to save power, maybe not the best chassis, because you probably can get away with one newer CPU, which will be just as fast as that, uh, which has how many cores? It's four cores with
0: no yeah. hyper-threading. Uh, so in total, you'd have eight cores at 2.5 gigahertz, which isn't bad, but... Don't and don't you forget know. about and maybe you have a great place to put this, but these things are loud enough that you will hear them through walls. So Uh well the fan noise doesn't go through
1: walls as much. Uh but if you have any opening where the sound can get through
0: direct without having to go through a wall, uh, it depends the on sound the, will get it. Depends on the I mean some of them do. Uh yeah, so it just it, it depends just, on the uh, fan noise, but yeah. Yeah. But I like, know I have you know,
1: a I have a couple In our office units, where but, we have a whole rack full of machines, once we close the door on that room,
0: you yeah don't really hear them. I have a couple of 1U machines here in production that are... one user worse. Yeah. Because they have really small, high-pitched and that's, fans. So that is a 1U machine that he's looking at. Yes. So, um, it's, it's a, so it, yeah, it's, not it's all just them just the Some of them hands, also spin yeah. the fans down, so they're not so loud. So, it's just...
1: Right. So, uh, that was when, when it wasn't in a separate room, when it was uh, out in the main office part... That was something I would do every once in a while just to screw with the guys down there. <laughs> is just logging over the management system <laughs> and crank the fans up to full power. And it would, just like, doo, it would be like, zzz, yeah. nice. nice troll, sir. Nice troll. <laughs> and
0: you turn it it's like, <laughs> if you have uh, thoughts on the power usage, in fact, mm-hmm. if you have numbers, I would love to see that. If you've done any kind of like of your own tracking, that is a thread yeah. in the subreddit. You can go throw your Put notes up. in there.
1: What I love about the newer hardware like if you get a new 1U machine from IX, the management system has power monitoring built in and it actually keeps mm-hmm. a graph of its power usage that over time. Slick. That's so slick. if if it has a duty cycle where you know it's busy during these times of the day, you'll actually see that on the graph and see hey how well <laughs> we the CPU is scaling itself
0: down to use less power when it's when not busy pushing and only using the power when it is. That's funny. Uh, All right, Alan. So uh, that was a question about power usage. Now we move on to a question I think is on a lot of people's minds from Mike about putting PFSense on some hardware. A longtime listener, I find your show one of the best, yada, yada, yada. Some shows back, Alan mentioned that they have managed to get PFSense onto a TP-Link consumer router. Okay. I've never said that. I know, this but is we've the got... the 20th person who I, thinks I said that. I know, I'm, I've always I'm, specifically <laughs> said that PFSense
1: <laughs> doesn't work on these routers because it's only x86 currently. Now, PFSense
0: is working on that, but I have no idea when that'll land. It's end. funny, though. We must have said something close because we get this all the time.
1: Well, we talked about building a router on these, but it was always a manual FreeBSD
0: router and not PFSense. Right. But everybody
1: just like, FreeBSD router, that means PFSense.
0: That's, that must have been what it was. Yeah. So... They do yes. have hardware. You could find it. They have partners. Yes. You can find it on their website.
1: Well, yes. They, they have the PFSense store, and they sell nice hardware that will be like the TP-Link, but has an actual real CPU in it, like a, an x86 CPU. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's all been tested, and it's known to work
0: perfectly with PFSense. Hey, you know, That's uh, we need your emails. We really do. Otherwise, we might. You know what? You know, Alan, we could just not do feedback and just have like big roundups if nobody emails us. But people could also, if you've done a PFSense build... Take some pictures. Everybody's got a phone that takes pictures and sends emails now. Take a picture, tell us a little bit about it, and send it into the show. That'd be kind of cool.
1: Yeah. Uh, PFSense, uh, did gave away some awesome ones at various BSD conferences. Uh, at can actually, the, the guy that runs the conference managed to win one with. Uh, oh. They had Beastie done up with like a hockey stick and everything because it was the Canadian conference. It was awesome. Charlie, uh, yeah. So for the TP links, if you want to, if if you want to get your hands dirty and build a custom build of FreeBSD to put on it and, and, you know, play with messing with the bootloader and overwriting the Flash, if that kind of embedded work is interesting to you, on GitHub under the FreeBSD, there's freebsd-wifi-build, which has the instructions for about 10 or 15 different routers. Uh, and also, because it's basically related to the router, the Onion uh, you know, Omega little yeah. device here. right. Uh, on how to install FreeBSD on it. And you can do that but it doesn't work for PFSense
0: currently, partly because you really don't have enough storage. Mm. Alan, before we get out of the feedback segment, mm-hmm. you tossed in something that sort of came up uh, today, and we often talk about ZFS storage and often talk about ZFS on Linux here in the feedback segment. And this post from the Software Conservancy came out, and it looks like they're disagreeing with Canonical's decision to uh, implement ZFS shipping with Ubuntu.
1: Yes, uh, to provide a compiled ZFS uh, So in particular, basically, they say that uh, the CDDL license that uh, ZFS is under uh, isn't compatible with the GPLv2 that Linux is under. Uh, The Software Conservancy or Software Freedom Conservancy has uh, a group of Linux developers who have basically authorized the SFC to um, do enforcement action on their behalf or whatever. Um, And so, you know, they have... uh, their case. Basically, they say Canonical managed to find some lawyers who thought the opposite—that that it that would work—and uh, uh, that you know, often that's the case when you do this type of thing, and only a court can really decide.
0: And yeah, uh, right. That really seems to be the, the the key thing. Is it almost seems like it's that, gonna, yes, the GPL has never actually been fully tested in court. The way I read this too is it really seems like what they want is Oracle just to, open to GPL. ZFS. I mean, they mean because they well, the whole the, opening paragraph. they say GDL compatible. Yeah, that's you're right. They do. You're right. But the whole opening paragraph is about Oracle, really. Yeah. Well, at the
1: beginning, yes. Uh, partly because the SFC is trying to be friendly with uh, uh, Canonical. Canonical, and actually, so far, uh, the agreement between the Conservancy and Canonical is that Canonical has to lobby Oracle to. I uh, considered doing that to ZFS. Although so how what does I've heard through the heard ga- the Grapevine is that previously, uh, uh, like a, a while ago, long before this Linux stuff came up, uh, a company had offered to pay Oracle at least $100 million mm. to relicense ZFS, and
0: Oracle refused. They're not going to do it, dude. They're, they're not going to yeah. do it. Uh, listen, how is this different than any other driver that distribution well, ships? that's the one I've
1: kind of wondered. It's like... If it's a separate driver, then that's – it's an external module. It's like how is that different than if the?
0: If the conservancy is right about this and they set a precedent here, then would they necessarily be saying the – exactly. The AMD driver, the NVIDIA driver, any driver well, that – basically, a hard-
1: there's a couple of different camps. The one camp says that only statically compiled, so built into the kernel, is making a derivative thing. And that right. uh, things that are dynamic modules, like the graphics driver and so on, are not.
0: Well, and they're also, they're not derived from code of the kernel. They don't derive well, their, they, yeah, they, they link to the kernel.
1: Right. So they they use facilities from the kernel to interface with it. But
0: yeah. And that's it, where the dispute is, is those facilities, right? But it, to me, it seems like if this is true, well, then there's so many there's, other there's drivers that also are going to be. raids of,
1: of fanaticism here, right? Like uh, some people think that any touching the GPL code at all contaminates it. Uh, and some people are like only static linking, some people are only dynamic linking, and some people, uh, you know, there's like, well, I think
0: we this, just want to be reasonable and have stuff work. I think the conservancy is about to find themselves potentially in a position where they are lobbying for things that very powerful players in the Linux ecosystem uh, don't agree with. Uh, for right. example, uh, VMware right. is a contributor to the Linux Foundation, right? And the Conservancy is suing VMware. Uh, I think it is probably in Canonical and, and SUSE's and Red Hat's best interest for everybody on the Linux side to be able to ship ZFS. And so I bet they're hoping Canonical. I'm sure Red Hat and SUSE are watching this and going, go ahead, Mark, ship ship Ubuntu it that. Let's see how that plays out in the marketplace. And if they have a win there, they're all going to do it. They're yeah. all going to do it. So uh, the Conservancy is pushing a very... Fine line here, but the conservancy is backed by a bunch of people that own chunks of the Linux copyright. They're also uh, barely struggling to get funding too.
1: Yes, that is Uh But you know, if they were to win the VMware case, then yeah. that might change. Well,
0: and they, you know, they that is their point. They are there to defend the GPL. That's how they yes. see it. And so, exactly. Uh, so, what do you think is probably right, Alan? Do you have a gut feeling, uh, or do you think we're going to have to wait and see? Well, it's really nobody's right
1: <laughs> it's, it's kind of this undecidable question because of the the way laws work but, you know so is, it's all open to interpretation really it's like how do you interpret exactly what these words mean does you know do you does making this dynamic could, logical uh, does it making a dynamic module is that a derivative work or is it just linking two separate geez, pieces of software that's that aren't in a big
0: can of worms Alan yeah exactly um, canonical could so be the one far, about to open this in court too right I mean they could get yeah. to, this could go to court yeah, uh, you know
1: the uh, the software conservancy is trying to avoid that mm-hmm. partly for publicity. Like you know, obviously starting off diplomatic works best. Well, and to be uh, honest, but also uh, a lot of Le- Linux people have-
0: want their candy. They, I mean, people yeah. people want this. Yeah, uh,
1: don't take my candy the, away. The software conservancy's big concern is that the Linux Foundation, which unlike the FreeBSD Foundation, isn't a community-sponsored thing that is out there to improve the project. The Linux Foundation is companies have to pay in order to get access to the foundation and use it to steer things. It's, or it's quite, yeah, uh, promote themselves or other things. Yeah, but basically the Linux Foundation doesn't have any community steering on it at all. Right. It's that's all been, just a, that's actually by- been kind, kind of, of a cool. recent drama. Um, yeah they they had one community person and they got rid of them or whatever right
0: i wonder though if you look at this uh, is the so, is mm-hmm. is Go this conser- is the conservancy doing this for political reasons then
1: i don't think so well basically their concern is that the um linux foundation is watering down the gpl and trying to you know make it so that people can just work with stuff but that's you know the gpl is very specifically
0: about what it's about, right? So we have to come down to it depending on how something's connecting to GPL code and have those, what those mechanisms are, does that does it is that derivative? And it, when that decision if somebody makes that decision, that's going to answer not just this particular case, but probably a lot of drivers. Lots of drivers and lots of things, yeah. Hmm.
1: And you know, this one this one is a uh, a particular case. You know, most GPL enforcement stuff is pretty obvious because it's, you know, proprietary versus uh the open GPL. Uh but this is the, you know, almost there, right? Because the CDL code in ZFS is open source and it is, you know, free software. It's just has a, a weak uh, copyleft license instead of a right. strong copy life right. license. Um, and it, it's, the license says you can't add more terms to the license. And uh, basically the CDL says you can't make the license more restrictive. And the GPL is in fact more restrictive by forcing you to, things that are open and so um it'll be interesting to see how it plays out uh at this point you know it's kind of a let it happen but <laughs> yes basically it's, the, the problem is that everybody wants zfs and so everybody, most mm-hmm. people are on the side of, we kind of got to allow this. And then I, it's like, but is that
0: a slippery slope where now how do we enforce the GPL against anything else? I think this is beginning a long process of answering some questions that have been floating around for a really long time. But the bigger it, question is, if, if they allow ZFS, does that weaken their case against VMware?
1: I don't think so, because B- VMware was retaking BusyBox code, right? Which well, the, the, the VMware lawsuit isn't about BusyBox. That was settled. This is about the, the ESXi like, kernel. Yeah. The okay. VMware, basically, VMware's kernel module.
0: Mm. Although, I think
1: in theirs, it's less of a module and more of a whole new kernel that happens to have ZFS. Yeah, I thought it was. It, yeah, right? yeah, that's a good question.
0: That was a good uh, question. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Alan. Well, so we'll be following this story. Um, see what happens more. And uh, the long process probably now begins. Okay, so we need your freaking emails. Just going to say it one more time because we do have a double episode next week, and uh, we'd love to get them. slash contact questions and all of that. And with that all done, guess what? It means it's time for the TouchNet Roundup. <laughs> Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's that crazy music Me, of the round for stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show. But we still want to give you some links to read up on after the show. Give you a quick brief once-over on them here on the show. And some of these came from our talented, sophisticated, and on top of it all subreddit at TechSnap.reddit.com. Some of these. Some of them did not. But our first one did, Alan. It's called MouseJack, injecting mm-hmm. keystrokes into wireless mice. Keystrokes into wireless mice. MouseJack is a collection of security vulnerabilities affecting non-Bluetooth wireless mice and keyboards. Spanning seven vendors, these vulnerabilities enable attacker to type arbitrary commands into a victim's computer from up to 100 meters away, using a $15 USB dongle. Yep,
1: yeah, all those
0: uh, non-Bluetooth wireless mice and keyboards. Who would ever use something like that? Who would ever... <laughs> I love my Logitech MX. I
1: think it's great. I, I, my first one ever was an MX-1000, but it was... Because it was free, I've never wanted a wireless mouse. Ah. My mouse sits on the mouse pad. It never like the wire yeah. has never been a problem for me. Yeah, yeah. For me, you I know can see
0: why. For you, it's just
1: you know because of how far away the computer is. Yeah. And I got
0: all, I got like three mice, right? And so there'd be yeah. a lot of wires moving, and you'd you'd hear it. You'd hear it rubbing. Uh, so we have a little story on how to kill a supercomputer. Ah. But anyway, yeah, that's a cool story. Uh, so, yes, how to kill a supercomputer. So this story is stories
1: about basically how when you put enough computers together in one spot uh, <laughs> yeah. or enough RAM in a single computer, uh-huh. you can, uh, the rate of the uh, craziness caused by cosmic rays and so on uh, can actually get pretty crazy.
0: Yeah, I've heard about uh,
1: this. So, yeah, they had one where uh, I think it was 5,000 machines in the, uh, to put together to make this supercomputer. And the cosmic rays would cause a RAM error in the machines that didn't have ECC so frequently that one machine would always be crashing and they could never get the the whole (laughs) cluster up at once. Uh, And then uh, I had other problems with, you know, if the power wasn't clean enough, it could cause enough fluctuations to cause problems Uh, or one where the power... The re- voltage regulators would actually die, and they could just never get all the machines to be online at once because they were dying faster than they could fix them and then they had the uh, the IBM blue gene uh, after weeks of searching, the culprit was uncovered. The solder used to make the boards carrying the processors uh, contained radioactive lead uh, that was causing bad data into the l1 cache what? of the processor. Wow, yeah, there was a bit of radioactive lead in the uh, solder and it caused just enough random variances to get into the uh, L1 cache that it caused the machine to always have errors hmm <laughs> hmm
0: uh, all right, Alan, I got another story for you. Just a quick one on the whole iPhone uh, story with the FBI trying to get access to the San Bernardino shooter's phone. Uh, the the, F- the FBI has made the case that this is a narrow request about getting access to this one shooter's phone and not about setting precedent, which is a little contemptuous of the public's intelligence because it implies that you don't understand that the way law works is by establishing precedent. Uh, anyways, uh, I, could, I could go on and on, but TechDirt did a great job. They wrote it over here, over here and kind of outlined why actually it's exactly about setting precedent with all writs. Act here in the U.S., uh, using that to get access to this, they have actually 11 other cases that uh, will be... Followed up on if this one gets through. Yeah, exactly.
1: It's like, well, the FBI isn't the
0: Department of Justice is already suing for twelve more phones before this one's even been decided. Because that's how the law works. It doesn't yeah. matter if your intention is to set precedent or not. You set precedent. That's how it works. Yeah. It's a good article that kind and of. And it's the it.
1: same reason you know, going back to the previous topic, it's the same reason why the GPLs never made it all the way to court because there's this fear that if the president lands on the wrong side, then mm-hmm. either that will make Linux impossible to use in business or it will.
0: Take away the um, the protections of the GPL. So we have something, one of the classiest kinds of roundups, something from the mailing list from OpenSSL's mailing list. Yeah. So there's just a head up that they'll be releasing uh,
1: OpenSSL 102g and 101s uh, on March 1st, uh, sometime between 1300 and 1700 UTC, so early in the morning.
0: This is a uh, patch S of kind of heads up.
1: Yeah. Uh, so on uh, the first Tuesday of March, uh, there will be a open SSL advisory. At least one of the problems that's
0: fixed is listed as high severity. Okay. Okay. There you go. Uh, how about uh, – so that's a little heavy. How about something to lighten the mood? How about a fiber story? Google is lighting up dark fiber all over the place. For years, San Francisco has had a robust fiber optic infrastructure, but it just sits there. Dark, dormant. Google announced Wednesday that it's going to start lighting it up. Uh, and uh, here's something that's kind of neat I discovered about this. It doesn't mm-hmm. have an exclusive um, right to this fiber like it has in some places. Right. It's, the, the, when it, Dark fiber means somebody else owns it mm-hmm. and has the
1: capacity and is willing to sell it to you if you want money. Which means you pay them.
0: other businesses could come along, use the same fiber, and compete with Google in the area.
1: Well, normally, uh, they, they call it dark fiber. There's many fibers. So you could run a second one beside Google you could rent. But mm-hmm. obviously, they, Google basically has a lease on it, so they're not going to – although – uh the downside is that the person lease if someone else is willing to pay more uh the other company could pull the lease out from under you when it expires so you know hmm. if you lease it for 2 years and then somebody else at the end of the 2 years somebody else is willing to pay a lot more than you were uh then you could end up with no fiber anymore Yeesh. But, yikes uh, yikes uh, my my dark fiber comes up this week what
0: a ten gigabit wavelength yeah, between Shut your face! Uh, You're getting you a ten centers. gigabit connection. Not entry. to my house. Oh, okay, good. I, I was, could do my house, but it was too expensive. I was about to table flip right here on the show. I was about to table flip. I can't handle it. I can't handle it. It's too much. No,
1: this is this is only going about two blocks from uh, the big data center to a, a secondary site that uh, where power
0: and space are much cheaper than in the data center. Oh, nice. Good find. Yes. Uh, all right. Asus has or Asus has settled FTC charges and mm-hmm. a twenty year supervision. Yes. Uh so I'm not sure how this came about and how Asus is the only one getting it. But
1: okay. uh the Federal Trade Commission has uh, was basically suing Asus over uh security vulnerabilities and negligent practices related to Asus's routers and accompanying services. Uh so because of uh Asus routers had a firmware update tool and they told you there were no updates when there actually was a critical update. Okay. And uh, they had ones where they offered you this, like, cloud file storage service, but other people could break in and steal your files and a bunch of things like that. All the typical stuff we see with routers and why we don't recommend you use an off-the-shelf router and instead get a PFSense or something. Uh, So as part of the settlement, uh, which is there as a PDF, uh, ASUS has agreed that for the next 20 years, their uh, firmwares will be audited by an independent auditor before they ship it.
0: Mm, Wow. So, who that
1: auditor is going to be. Uh, doesn't really say. I'm guessing anybody ASUS pays, which might yeah, water it, it down a little yeah. bit. But, hmm. 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 Uh, in the end, uh, we might see all of a sudden ASUS's routers being uh, of higher caliber than everybody else's because they're being audited. Maybe. maybe. Uh, and then we might see some other companies uh, submit to voluntary audits uh, or maybe the FTC going after a bunch more people for making bad routers. I wonder if this is laying the groundwork for supervision
0: of Internet of Things type devices. Well, too. yes.
1: Uh, what I would like to see is the FTC go after uh, my smart t- uh, smart TVs, where they just yes. pull the rug out from under you and stop supporting it entirely. Yeah. Or uh, Noah's fridge. Yes. You know? Yes. Yes. How, how is how is Noah's fridge allowed to uh. not get up like that?
0: I love poking about that. (laughs) All right, Alan, have you heard about this? Remember this? I'm sure you did hear about this. It was sort of implied that Carnegie Mellon might have been used by maybe the FBI or some other agency to break Tor in some way. Uh, But it was all hearsay. Well, a federal judge in Washington has now confirmed what has been suspected. Carnegie Mellon University was hired. Their Software Engineering Institute was hired by the federal government to do research into breaking Tor in 2014. The judge also made a notable statement in the court filing saying Tor users clearly lack a reasonable expectation of privacy in their IP address while using the Tor network. Some of the details that Tor alleged previously seemed to be wrong, though. The research was funded by the Department of Defense, not the FBI. Well, you know, it's interesting. Do you know who paid for Tor in the first place? I thought it was the Department of Defense. Yes. and then, So it makes sense that they would pay someone to figure out if there's any problems with it so they could fix them. Here's the fun trick they did. So the Department of Defense pays them to do this research. And then once the Department of Defense is paid for this research, the FBI is now able to re- subpoena that research, use it, and break it. <laughs> so it was <laughs> a beautiful move. Uh, and uh, we, have full, uh, we have everything else written up. But one more thing. Uh, the releva- uh, relevation – Revelation, which was Revelation, a, yeah. Yeah, first reported by Vice, uh, came out as part of an ongoing criminal case against Brian, Brian Farrell, which is one of the Silk Road 2.0 top right. admins. They This research enabled investigators to find him on tour. He was arrested over a year ago in Washington State. His trial is scheduled for April 25th, coming up right here in Seattle. Hmm. Hmm. All right, Alan, moving on. Next story in the round. Of, have we talked about the mint? Uh- nope. It happened only a couple days ago. All right, well, here's our opportunity. Tell me your thoughts, sir.
1: Right, so Linux Mint, the, one of the Linux distributions, had their site hacked, and uh, the URLs to their ISOs were replaced with uh, different URLs that downloaded ISO that had malware in it. Um, and mostly, the, well, that was a thing that we cover on TechSide normally, it's mostly I wanted to cover it to talk about, um, you know, on their website, they post the MD5 hashes I think in this particular attack, the MD five hashes weren't replaced, so it's just most people didn't bother to check. Uh but it basically shows the problem with using an MD five hash posted on your website because when they logged in when they hacked in and changed the URLs, they can just change the MD five hashes to match the exactly. bad stuff you download. Exactly. And this is why what you basically have to do is have GPG signatures. Uh and and that way. Yeah. You can prove that the file was signed by a key that you've got somewhere, some other way. So uh, the way we do it in FreeBSD is on top of using, uh, you know, SHA two hundred and fifty six instead of MD five because it's harder to spoof. um, uh, As part of the release uh, of the the each version, uh, the release engineer sends out an announcement email that's GPG signed with the release engineer's key, Uh, and this allows people to verify that those SHA two hundred and fifty six checksums actually came from the real release engineer yeah mint's taken
0: a serious serious bruising in the uh pr department on this people are really eating them up for this and
1: well it basically it's this isn't specific to linux mint i agree a lot of distros just mm-hmm. you know it's like oh right we just post the md5 like everybody else It's like well if you don't understand how it works mm-hmm. it's not quite good enough. But i feel like the bigger problem too is really no end users checking that stuff Exactly. Uh, in OpenBSD, they have a thing called Signify. Yeah. And actually, when uh, you buy the CDs, yeah. the signature is printed
0: on the label. Awesome. And uh, you can use that to verify it. Uh, I was trying to think of, of a way to, to automate that process for end users, but I've, I can't. I don't well, the problem I is that the
1: malware version of it could kind of. Basically, yeah. you'd have to. Replace users manually downloading an ISO with some automated process. You'd
0: have to have a downloader that could check something that and then you would want to have it be something centralized that could be compromised, because then you just compromise that centralized point. So now but, you're talking well, about a blockchain based uh, ISO identification service using a specialized downloader with distributed torrents. I, I know <laughs> I don't know, Alan. Right. That that's why we have GPG. Yeah.
1: Right. And yeah. we have keys. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, yes, this is the real FreeBSD release engineer and It's a role based key, and there's a couple people that have access, and nobody else does. And they sign this email with all the regular SHA-256s in it. Yeah. And you can use those to verify
0: easily yourself. I feel like uh, our next story in the roundup is literally a scene out of like a television series or a movie where uh, like a a, a couple of robbers break into a house and they bring the smart hacker kid, and he or she disables the home alarm system in seconds. That's kind of what this next story reminds me of, Alan. Yep. It's kind of it. This is specifically a wireless home system, which kind of makes that probably a bit easier of a task.
1: Well, uh, yeah. So basically the various bits of the system are wireless so that you don't have to punch holes in your walls to run the cables to connect the motion sensors in the window. These have been out for years and years and years yeah. and years. And lots of people pay for them. Uh, and it turns out that, uh, you know, they can easily
0: be turned off remotely, which kind of defeats the entire purpose. Ah. Oh, coming out of uh, IO Active, which is a Seattle-based security firm, they published proof-of-concept report on Wednesday that outlines how they simple safe's wireless home security system. According to IO Active, they were able to eavesdrop on wireless transmissions between the components and capture pin entries used to unlock the security system. Ah.
1: So they weren't using SSL or something between the components, and so uh, they were able to, what sounds like in clear text, see yeah. the owner uh, typing in their PIN number to unlock it, it Looks like and what they, they f- just replay
0: that later. Uh, smart. They, so they spent 250 bones, they got themselves a couple of simple, safe components online, and then they got they hooked up to a microcontroller, and, uh, well, the rest is probably pretty obvious. Huh. They say it listens on a 433, 433 megahertz radio transmission frequency. And the reply is coming
1: at three fifteen megahertz. Yeah.
0: <laughs> See, it's just like in, it's just like in the uh, Hollywood stories, there, Alan. Okay, we got uh, a, a post here from uh, Dan. How do you say it, Kaminsky? Kaminsky, tell me Chiminski. about this. Yes. So uh, Dan Kaminsky
1: is a very famous security researcher guy, mm-hmm. and he <clears throat> basically has uh, some thoughts on why the GLIBC thing we talked about last week is much much worse than we ever thought. Oh, really? Yeah. Much wider spread. Yeah, and basically it can dig down in there a lot worse than you thought. Like, most people didn't realize that sudo is vulnerable because it checks host names on machines.
0: Mm, So DNS lookups. Yeah, they're basically in everything. Yeah, that is... Even things you didn't think of. Huh. Okay. You want to end the roundup on a rumor? Seems like something we don't normally do, but this one I like. We don't normally cover rumors at all, but... I don't know. This could happen. Rumor going around, according to the register, that IBM wants to buy Bruce Schneier's resilient company for a hundred million dollars. Bruce Schneier working for IBM, could you see it, Alan? What do you think?
1: I'm kind of I don't know much about uh the the company in this case, the uh resilient or whatever.
0: But hundred million seems kind of low for an acquisition for a Place that Brookshire works. Yeah, I think that's isn't that the I think that's the house that he does his like consulting security research under. Mm-hmm. So according this is by the way according to persons with knowledge of the matter. So you know it's got to be true. Uh, all right, well so like we mentioned a bazillion times this week uh, we will be live at a special time next week at 11 a.m. Pacific. Which, Alan, do you know the math there for that one? Well, that,
1: a- those, those times aren't going to be right because we're doing a double, right? So we start early.
0: Well, we start at 11 a.m. Pacific. We normally start at 1 p.m. Pacific.
1: Ah, okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, how early are we starting? Two? We're, yeah, that's right, So yes. we normally
0: start at eleven. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So,
1: two p.m. Eastern, which yeah.
0: is nineteen hundred UTC. Yeah. And of course, it doesn't really matter because all over jupiterbroadcasting.com. slash calendars. Yes. That's really the thing. That's the thing. And and then the daylight saving times will start screwing with stuff. Oh.
1: But if I'm not mistaken, not until yeah. after. We'll yeah. yeah. Well, uh, we'll actually miss a chunk of it. Yeah. Of well, we'll at least miss one of the two weeks of. The U.S. and Canada are, have jumped before oh, the rest of the
0: world because George Bush is a... Yeah. Screws with last. Super bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I hate it. Anyways, that is I could do a whole show on that. Jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact for the emails, TechSnap.reddit.com to submit content to the show. And jblive.tv is where you watch it live. And don't forget we also have RSS feeds. You subscribe and you get TechSnap automatically every single week. All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for tuning in this week's episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week.